0: good to see everybody. Look at this. Look at them all come in. Happy Easter, everybody. (laughs) Happy Easter. Yeah. Look at all our friends this morning. So good to see you all. Guys, if this doesn't bless your heart, see all this like, like it is me. Um, All right. Well, we know that today's a special day. I can see it just on your clothing that you're wearing, the bright colors down here. And uh, I'm sure you've probably already taken pictures or you're going to very soon. Um, Today is Easter Sunday, and we remember what we've been singing about and what our scripture has been telling us uh, that we've already looked at today that Jesus is alive. He's risen. So I wanted to show you something. Um, I wanted to show you a, you know, people are celebrating the risen king today including this one spot. And I want to show you some real pictures of a tomb. We talk about Jesus uh, rising again from a tomb. And there's a tomb in Israel, and it's very close. If it's not the exact spot, it's very close to the spot where Jesus rose again. And it's, it's located in a garden. That's the first thing I want to show you, some beautiful pictures of some of the flowers that grow there. But here's the entranceway. And there's an entrance, there's a doorway... And then if you can see right here, there's, can anybody tell me what that is up here in the front? That's the stone that rolled away. Yeah, and when they say it rolled away, I mean, it's a round stone that is very heavy and would take several people to move it. And, of course, we know that the angels helped. And uh, when, when the women went there, the angels were already there. The stone was rolled away, and Jesus wasn't there. And in this tomb, guess what's in it? And when you go in there, nope, he's not there. He is risen. It is empty. You get to see it. So I have this. And this kind of shows you what it's like. And if you open it, there's nothing in there, okay? There's the stone. And it can actually roll a little bit back and forth right there, which is pretty cool. So when the women came that morning, they expected the stone would be rolled right in front of the, the doorway there. And it wasn't. It was rolled away. I know. He is God. And he conquered death, was dead, and rose again. So I don't think a stone got in the way, did it? There were even some guards there. They didn't get in the way. Because when Jesus rose, there's nothing that's going to stop it. Right? Amen? Amen. Alright. Um, Christy is going to help me hand these out. So I want you all to remember that. We're going to hand out um, some stickers. Okay? And these stickers will help you remember that. And you can pillar, a page, and they might be doing this in children's church. So hold on to If you're going to children's church, hold on to those. And uh, there should be enough for everybody. But just remember, a special thing happened in this garden, in this this special place that never happened before. And it won't happen again. It's Jesus rose again from the dead. And that gives us life with God forever. Let's pray. Let's pray, and then everybody else that needs a sticker, you can come by and grab one. Okay? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for today and the celebration on Easter Sunday. Every Sunday we recognize this, but especially today, we recognize your Son is alive. He is risen. He has conquered death. And because of Him, we have a pathway, a a, a bridge to salvation, to an eternal relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now let me do one thing. I'm going to say, He is risen. And then the traditional response says is, He is risen indeed. So I'm going to say, He is risen. And you say, He is risen indeed. Here we go. One, two, three. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. All right. Thank you. Uh, children's church. Yes. I need to mention that. Children's church. Twos and threes can go to children's church. We have that in the nursery area. And then K4 and first grade, it will be on the third level. Um, and if we have visitors you are looking for your kids afterwards, seek, uh, find one of the ushers or pastors. We can help you um, find our way through the church to, to get them.
1: All right, thank you, Ben. And boys and girls, what a wonderful turnout for the children's sermon this morning. So please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You already heard some of that read in our New Testament reading. As you do that, last Sunday, as we were focusing on Palm Sunday, I shared some pictures and we looked at some different ideas about what gate Jesus used to enter Jerusalem. And, you know, from an academic standpoint, from a historical standpoint, trying to put yourself there and imagine the story, that's a helpful thing to talk about. But then we determined that it really didn't matter which gate Jesus entered. We know He entered Jerusalem to become the gate by which we all come into the presence of God. Amen. So that's what we talked about last week. Well, this week, I want us to think about the location of the the crucifixion and the resurrection. Ben already talked a little bit about that in his children's sermon. That seems a little more important than what gate Jesus entered, is where did Jesus die on the cross? Where did this world-shaking, life-changing miracle happen where Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, rose victorious from the grave? That's kind of a big deal, isn't it? To know where that happened would be a nice thing. Well, in my title slide up here, that is a picture of what Ben was looking at and talking about, the Garden Tomb. Now, the Garden Tomb most recently was discovered in the 1800s, mid-1800s, and from that point on, it kind of became the favorite go-to place, mainly for Protestants, all right, for, for Baptists, Methodists, the people like ourselves. Protestants like to go to the Garden Tomb. Now, as they excavated that in the mid-1800s, they realized that inside there was a Crusader's cross. And so they know that Crusaders had been there even before and had marked the inside with the cross, themselves believing maybe that was the place where Jesus rose from the grave. Uh, now, I think one of the reasons why Protestants kind of prefer this place is that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which we'll look at in a minute, is it's a little... Uh, we'll look at it in a minute. Go back to that other one. It's a little uh, too uh, maybe orthodox and... Catholic for us Baptist folks, right? It makes us a little uncomfortable, right? And, uh, and when you go in there, and, and we'll see that in just a minute, it's just got thousands of years of, of veneration on top of it, and that just makes it a little hard for us to, to put ourselves there and imagine. Well, the garden tomb is also right next to an exposed rock outcropping that, at least in the mid-1800s, looked like a skull. And we know that Golgotha or Calvary means the place of the skull. So you can imagine why people are pretty excited about this. Uh, it lies outside the current old city walls of Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us that Jesus was crucified outside the city walls. It was against the Jewish uh, teachings to have the crucifixion or burials inside the city wall. It had to happen outside the city wall. And, uh, and of course, the things we have to remember is that the old city walls of Jerusalem today are only only 500 years old, right? So they're brand new, practically, right? I mean, its we talk about the new building over here. It's 20 years old, folks, over 20 years old. It's not new anymore. But those old city walls are only 500 years. Well, you're talking about a city that goes back thousands of years. So yeah, 500 years isn't that big of a deal. And the garden tomb is just a quiet spot. It's in a garden. It's very meditative, contemplative. It's, it's just easy to go there and imagine what that Easter morning looked like. But, The Church of the Holy Sepulchre does tend to have the weight of history and archaeology behind it. Uh, We know from archaeology that it, too, at the time of Christ, was outside the city walls, and they have found other first century tombs right there underneath the church and nearby. Uh, It has tradition behind it, which, you know, Constantine built the first uh, uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre in 352 A.D., so 300 years after the time of Christ, and that was based off of even older tradition. The Christians in Jerusalem had long held that this place was where the crucifixion and the resurrection happened. So it does have that, that history, that archaeology behind it, but it, like I said, it has 2,000 years worth of veneration, and it's got Armenians, and it's got Ethiopian Orthodox, and it's got Greek Orthodox, and it's got Roman Catholic, and all these traditions are piled up on top of it like layers of an onion. And it's kind of hard when you're there to picture and imagine this as a Skull Hill and a Garden Tomb. It just, it's just you really can't picture it, and so it's a little, it's a little difficult to imagine that. And so for that reason, people like to go to the Garden Tomb. Now this difference is is magnified by the kind of worship service on Easter morning they have there. I, I went online this morning and watched uh, it. You know, had been recorded because that was like at two in the morning for us, but. Uh, watch the, uh, the Easter service at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And, you know, it's pomp and circumstance. It's all these big candles. It's all these, you know, wild outfits, right, with the hats and the robes and all this. And they're singing in Latin. And it's all very formal and traditional and staid. Then you go to the garden tomb, look at their worship service, and it looks like something we would be doing. I mean, it's It's in English. They've got drums and guitars. They're singing Chris Tomlin, not ancient Latin. You know, it's, it's very different. And so I like, well, yeah, that's the difference between the Garden Tomb and the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Now, some people would ask the question, David, why does this matter? Why does it matter where Jesus rose from the grave? Other people would take that even further and say, does it even matter that Jesus rose from the grave? There are people who, who just reject the historicity of the crucifixion and especially of the resurrection. And they say, well, you know, it didn't literally happen. It's a good spiritual story. We need to focus on the spiritual truth behind it. But truth, I think, at the very least, has to be based in fact. Don't you think? At the very least, truth should be factual. And if the resurrection of Jesus Christ didn't actually happen in time and space as a historical reality then what difference could a risen Christ make in our lives or our world? We cannot have a meaningful Christian experience apart from the reality of a bodily, literally resurrected Jesus Christ. The resurrection happened. It had to have happened. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look with me at verse 12. Now, we read the first part of this where Paul... Give some of his evidence and proofs of the resurrection of Christ. He talks about people that Jesus appeared to, up to 500 people at one time, people that were alive at the time Paul wrote this. So you could go and ask them, did this really happen? And Paul lists all of these appearances as proofs of the resurrection of Christ. But the big question and debate among the Corinthians was about the resurrection of our own bodies when Christ returns. They were denying the reality of our resurrection. And so Paul says in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Again, they weren't denying the resurrection of Christ. They were denying our future resurrection. He says if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, our proclamation is in vain and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Paul makes it clear that without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Christian faith is futile. It's worthless. It's pointless. It's false. It's foolish. Paul goes on in verse 20 to say, "...but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep." So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important, most pivotal event in all of world history. Its impact is both global and eternal. And I want us to look this morning at five reasons why what we celebrate today is so vital. What is so important about the fact that He lives? First, because He lives, because of the resurrection, we can know that Jesus is who He said He is. We can know. Now, throughout his ministry, Jesus made some pretty bold claims. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God. In John's Gospel, it's recorded he even went so far as to equate himself with the great I Am, the covenant name of the Lord that was revealed to Moses in the burning bush. This is why the religious leaders hated Jesus. This is why they they wanted to put him to death. We read this in John 8, 37. Jesus says, I know you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. They rejected these claims of Jesus as blasphemous. That's why they wanted to put him to death. But throughout his ministry, people confessed Jesus as both the Messiah and Lord and the Son of God. Whether that was Peter, his disciple, or the pagan Roman soldier at the cross who said, truly this man was the Son of God. Jesus' many miracles showed him to be a man of God. His Revolutionary authoritative teaching showed him to be a wise rabbi and a prophet. And his sacrificial death on the cross demonstrated for us God's immense love. But it was only the resurrection that proved once and for all that Jesus of Nazareth was far more than a miracle worker. He was more than just a good man, he was more than a wise sage, he was more than a martyr. Indeed, it proves that he was the very Son of God, just as He proclaimed. Paul says this in Romans 1.4, Jesus, through the Spirit of holiness, was declared with power to be the Son of God by what? By His resurrection from the dead. The resurrection was God's proof that Jesus was exactly who He claimed to be. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity in human flesh. Because He lives, we can know that Jesus is who He said He is. Secondly, because He lives, our sins can be forgiven. We can have forgiveness of sins. Look back at verse 17. Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. People often wonder why we call Good Friday good. I mean, what's so good about it, they say? We believe the Son of God died. Sinful mankind rejected its Creator. That Israel put to death their very own Messiah. It's a day about betrayal and abandonment and brutality and blood and death. Why do we call that Friday good? Well, it's because God's eternal plan. That Jesus Christ would die as the innocent, sacrificial lamb. As the substitutionary payment for our sins. That's why we call it good. The sacrifices of the Old Testament anticipated. They pointed ahead to the one who would come as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul refers to Jesus as Christ, our Passover Lamb, who has been sacrificed. Jesus is even the fulfillment of the Passover. He is that perfect... Sacrifice without spot or blemish, who gave His life to atone for our sins. And when we are under the blood of Jesus Christ, the wrath of God passes over us. That's why it's a good Friday. It's the completion of God's redemptive plan. It's the reality behind all the shadows of the Old Testament, from the temple and tabernacle to the priests, to the law, to the sacrificial system. On that day, Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins. He opened wide the way so that whosoever will may come and be declared righteous and holy so the enemies of God can become the children of God. For God so loved the world He gave His Son. That's why it's Good Friday. But the death of Christ, Good Friday, is only half the story. There's a reason why we have a cross right here that's covered in flowers. Because the cross by itself is only half the story. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, without that life bursting forth from that place of death, Jesus' death on the cross would have been foolish. It would have been pointless. Good Friday would not have been good at all. At the very least, it would have given us an example of somebody dying for their beliefs or, or how, to, how to face injustice with dignity. It would have had no power to transform anyone or make any difference in our world, much less our eternal destiny. Paul, in fact, tells us in Romans chapter 5, 9, and 10 that while we are justified by the blood of Christ, we are saved by the resurrection of Christ. Look what he says in Romans chapter 5. How much more then, since we have now been justified by His blood, will we be saved through Him from wrath? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? It took the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to accomplish the forgiveness of our sins. Without His resurrection, Paul says, we would still be lost in our sins. There would be no forgiveness. First Peter chapter 1, Peter writes... For you know that you are redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who what? Who did what? Who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Without the resurrection. We would have no faith and no hope. But because Jesus died and rose again, we can confess our sins to the One who is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because Jesus lives, our sins can be forgiven. That's worth saying amen about, right? But secondly, because He lives, we can have a relationship with God. We, sinful people, because of that forgiveness, can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. The author of Hebrews writes about this. He says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin." Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Because Jesus died and rose from the grave, sinners like you and me can come with boldness and confidence before the throne and hear the same words that the woman caught in adultery heard, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Now, if you know that story, this woman caught in adultery was brought by the religious leaders and thrown at Jesus' feet as a test. They were trying to to, to catch Jesus in his words, and and, and they told Jesus what he did, what she had done, and that Moses, the law you know, says that she should be stoned to death. And you remember what Jesus said? He said, He who is without sin cast the first stone. And of course, then they all dropped their stones and walked away, because none of them could say they were sinless. And then Jesus says to this woman, Who Who here condemns you? And she looks up and says, No one, Lord. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, Jesus was the only person that day who was sinless. Jesus was the only person that day who had the right to condemn that woman. He has the right to condemn you and me. So why did He not bring down judgment on her? Because when Jesus came the first time, He didn't come to be our judge. He came to bear our judgment. He came to take the punishment that her sin and our sins deserve. Because Jesus is the Messiah and the mediator who will usher us into the kingdom and the presence of God. He is the source of peace on earth and the extension of God's goodwill to mankind. In John three, sixteen and seventeen, Jesus explains this. We love, quoting John three, sixteen, for God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. But we, we stop there. But if you look on at verse 17, Jesus says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Jesus came that first time not as our judge, but as our Savior, as our Redeemer. And because He lives, we can know and trust that everything Jesus said is true. He is exactly who He claimed to be. The resurrection, as I said, was God's stamp of approval on Jesus' life, teaching, and ministry and His acceptance of Jesus as that sacrificial lamb so that our sins can be forgiven. So that we can be made right with God and have a relationship with Him. But fourth, because He lives, we too will someday be resurrected. Amen? We too will know resurrection. Look back at 1 Corinthians 15 in verse 18. Paul again says, If Christ has not been raised, he says, Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Throughout this passage, Paul paints for us a very bleak picture of a world without resurrection. Without resurrection, our faith is futile. Without resurrection, what I'm doing right now, not only is it foolish, it's false. I'm preaching a false gospel. What The witness that I'm bearing is wrong if there is no resurrection of Christ. There would be no forgiveness of sins. We would be guilty before God. And we would all face death without hope. And we'd be tortured with the knowledge that those that we know, that loved and followed Jesus, have perished and are gone forever. That's a world without the resurrection. And listen, the Christian life is only the best life if it is based on the truth of the resurrection. Paul says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than anyone. If if all the hope we have is when my heart is beating and my breath is being drawn then I'm to be pitied more than anyone. People want to know what happens at death. What is that experience like? And is there anything after death? Every world religion, most major philosophies have wrestled with that question. I want to make it clear the Bible does not teach that after death we exist as some ghostly kind of form haunting people. That's not how that works. Nor does the Bible teach some kind of nirvana-like state of just pure bliss and harmony where we become one with the universe. The Bible doesn't teach reincarnation, this idea that, that, that we're on like this merry-go-round of life and death, you know, and, and, and we only get off when we finally figure it all out and get it right. So I guess none of us have done that yet, So because we're here. The Bible doesn't teach any of that. And of course the Bible rejects the pseudo-scientific, secular humanism of the day that would deny a bodily resurrection because it would say that this life is all there is and when that heart stops beating, that's it. That's the end of you. You go into pure nothingness. How nihilistic. What a bleak worldview that is. Because if that's true, if this life is as good as it gets, then what's the point of any of it? Why does anything matter? Why does anything I do matter? Why should I treat anybody humanely or compassionately? If this life is all there is, and in 100, 150 years, not only will none of us be around, but nobody will remember us, then what's the point of anything we do? But, if this life isn't all there is, if what we do here does have eternal consequences if we are eternal beings whose existence reaches beyond our physical selves, then everything matters. Who we are, what we believe, what we do, how we treat people, it has consequences that ripple through eternity. The Bible teaches that because Jesus physically rose from the grave, all of those who are in Him Will live forever in a new heaven and a new earth with resurrected bodies like his. Bodies that will never get hungry. Bodies that will never be thirsty. Bodies that will never get sick. Bodies that will never be injured. Bodies that will never grow old. Bodies that will never gain weight. Amen? Can I? <laughs> bodies that will never die. Because he lives, we too. Will be resurrected. Look at verses twenty-two through twenty-four. Paul talks about this. He says, For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterward at his commanding, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father when He abolishes all rule and all authority and all power, He says, for He must reign until He puts all of His enemies under His feet. And that last enemy to be destroyed, the last enemy is death. Death. Christ's resurrection makes possible our own resurrection. Because never before had anybody been raised from the grave in such a way as to be so transformed, they would never taste death again. Jesus Christ was the first fruit because He was the first person to be bodily raised from the dead to never die again. You know, yeah, He rose. He rose His friend uh, uh, Lazarus from the grave, but guess what? Lazarus died. Jesus rose from the grave, and guess what? He lives forevermore. He's still alive today at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming again in glory. He was the first fruit. That means that there will be other fruits to follow. Paul writes or I'm sorry, John writes in Revelation 21:4 that when Jesus comes again to bring his kingdom in its fullness, it says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. there will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. In other words, when Christ comes again, no one else will ever pass away because death itself has passed away. It is no more. Death is that one unconquered enemy. And so there's nothing that makes the resurrection better news than to hear that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. But guess what? Our new life in Christ, this resurrection life in Christ, doesn't have to wait until we die or until Christ returns. It begins at the moment of our salvation. When you answer that call of Christ and you begin to follow Him, you can experience that abundant eternal life today. Because He lives, we can know that power of the resurrection and live an abundant full life today. That's... Point number five up there. Jesus said in John 10.10 that He came that we might have an abundant, overflowing, full life. And we talked about this last week. That it was a new life. The old is gone. The new has come. We are made new creations in Christ Jesus. He gives us a fresh start. A blank slate. We are made new in Him. And it's a life of freedom. Because how can you live a full, abundant life if you're not free? Right? That's why we fight for freedom. That's why we value freedom. It's only in freedom that we can truly live out the lives that God has given us to live. But just as Satan wanted to keep Jesus in that tomb, bound by the chains of death, Satan wants to keep you bound to your past sin and shame. Satan wants to chain you to your regrets for your mistakes. He wants to shackle you with fear and doubt. But guess what? Satan couldn't hold Jesus in that grave. Those chains of death were broken. They could not keep Jesus down. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, Satan can't keep you bound either. There is no chain that can keep you bound to your past, to your sins, to your shame, to your doubt, to your grief, to your fears. Satan is powerless because God has set you free in Christ Jesus. And he's not given you a spirit of timidity or fear. He has given you the spirit of freedom and of power, a spirit of love and a sound mind. You've been, you've been declared righteous. There is no more shame. There is no more condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. And every temptation that will come your way, and just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you're not tempted. But God promises to give you an escape hatch. He'll give you a way out. And being a Christian doesn't mean you don't have doubts and questions and fears. But the Spirit of Truth gives you faith to overcome those doubts, questions, and fears. That's the life of freedom. The life of fullness. And just because you're a Christian, it doesn't mean you're never going to sin again. But when you do sin and make mistakes, you're reminded that the Son of God stands at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for you and to remind you that no matter what you do, you've already been forgiven. When you became a Christian, Jesus forgave you of the sins you've committed in the past. He even has forgiven you of the sins you have yet to commit. Listen to Paul's words. Turn with me, if you will, or or look on the screen at Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says it best. can't really improve on what Paul says here in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And as I read this, I I, I want you to listen. He is reminding his readers and us that in Christ, who they were no longer matters. All that matters is who they are in Jesus right now. And notice the power of Jesus' resurrection isn't just for that bodily resurrection in the future. It's to live a life of fullness today. Listen to what Paul says. And you were dead. In your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedience. Talking about the devil. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. So that's who they were. That's their past but these next two words are beautiful words. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love that He had for us, made us alive. So they were dead in their trespasses and sins, but God, in His rich mercy, because of His great love for us, has made us alive with Christ. And even though we were dead in trespasses, you are now saved by grace. And He also raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might display the immeasurable riches of His grace through His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourself. It's God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. For we are His workmanship Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Listen, because Jesus lives, we can know Him for who He is. We can experience the forgiveness of our sins and have a new relationship with God. Because Jesus lives, we too someday will live forever in resurrected, glorified bodies But that eternal, abundant life doesn't wait till death. It begins the moment that we're saved. The resurrection of Christ is not just some mere fact for us to contemplate and talk about or celebrate one day a year. It's literally a matter of eternal life or death. And our response to that will determine our eternal destiny. Jesus' resurrection means that all of our sins have been paid for once and for all. Jesus died once for the ungodly. We don't have to make any sacrifices. His sacrifice is sufficient. It was accepted by the Father. But if you reject this offer of salvation, if you choose instead to live in your sin, or you choose to try to, I don't know, work your way to heaven on your own, which is about as futile as trying to jump across the Grand Canyon... You can't do it. You'll never get there. If that's what you choose to do, though, then you will not know Jesus as Savior when He comes back. You'll know Him as judge. Because He is coming back again, and this time He will come to judge the living and the dead. Jesus explained this in John chapter 5, that everyone will be raised at the end of the age. Now, we, we focus on how Christians will be raised and glorified new bodies But everybody will be raised at the end of the age. Jesus says this, Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life and those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. The difference is what have you done with Jesus? Every one of us in this room will be resurrected. Will you be resurrected to life? Eternal, or to eternal damnation. Now you may be saying, David, I don't know. Maybe saying, David, you're right. I, I, I've been living in my sin. I've been trying to do things on my own way. I've been counting on church attendance and being a good person to get to heaven. What must I do now to be saved? Two things. Very simple. First, confess your sins. If Jesus died for the sins of humanity, then you and I must have sin, right? or He died for nothing. We have to first acknowledge that we are sinners, that it was my sin He bore on that cross. If it wasn't for our sins, Jesus would not have had to die on that cross. And I think for some people, especially in the Bible Belt, I think for some people, the the, the greatest problem is not accepting the resurrection of Christ. It's, It's not the fact that He is risen indeed. The problem for us is recognizing not that Jesus lives, but that we are dead in our sins and transgressions. People don't don't want to face up to their spiritual poverty. But they are lost in their sins apart from the grace of God. So to be saved, you first have to admit, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I need what Jesus did on the cross. But then secondly, receive His gift of salvation by grace through faith. It's not enough to believe the resurrection just as a, as a historical, in a historical sense, academically. We have to believe in it personally. It has to be in our heart. We have to appropriate what the resurrection means for us personally. This is what Paul means in Romans 10, 9, and 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Listen, it's that simple. Have you come to recognize the seriousness of your sin and the offense that it is to an infinitely holy God? Do you believe that Jesus, the Son of God, the sinless sacrifice, paid the price for your sins on the cross, defeated death and rose three days later? If you will confess your sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. He will forgive you. He will wash you clean. He will give you that relationship with God. You can experience that life abundant today and have the hope of resurrection in the future. If you've never made that decision, if you've got any doubt or question in your mind, I beg of you not to leave this place without settling where you stand with God. I'm going to be standing right down here in just a moment. would love to talk with you and pray with you and help you make that decision. Maybe you know in your heart you're a believer in Jesus Christ, but you've never told anybody, you've never made it public, you've never been baptized, which is how we publicly profess our faith in Christ. I invite you to come and present yourself as a candidate for baptism. Or maybe you and your family, you're baptized believers in Jesus, and you've been visiting with us and worshiping with us, and you know that this is the place that God would have you to worship and grow and serve. We invite you to come. Whatever the Lord has laid on your heart, let's be obedient what His Spirit is saying today. Would you stand and pray with me? Almighty God, we thank You for this holy day. And while we remember the resurrection of Christ every Sunday, we live in the reality of the resurrection every day of the week, every day of the year. On this day, we especially pause to focus on this amazing, Truth that Jesus Christ died on that cross, bearing our sin and shame, and rose victorious on the third day. And He's coming again. Father, I pray that we would all be ready for that day when we will stand before Your judgment seat. I pray Your Spirit would speak to our hearts and move among us. And for those of us that know Christ and have received Him as Lord and Savior God, burden us with the task of going and telling others the good news. When Jesus appeared to Mary and the women in the garden, He told them to go tell the others. And you commission us to go from this place and tell the good news that Jesus Christ lives. It's in His name we pray.